Otto English wrote a best-selling book called Fake History, The Great Lies About the Past That We've Bought Into, such as Abraham Lincoln believing all people were created equal, the Aztecs being slaughtered by the Spanish conquistadors, how everyone once thought the earth was flat. Now there's a new book, Ten False Icons, Fake Heroes, Ten False Icons and How They Altered the Course of History. Good morning, Otto. Good morning to you, Jim. That was strange because, of course, it's evening here. But yeah, there you go. Yeah, it was, str- <laughs> was also strange because I should have said good morning, Andrew, but you are Andrew Scott, but you write as Otto English. I may as well ask you why at the start. Um, so this is one of those curious things. You know, I often want you think of, of uh, people in history who use pen names and, and the list sort of goes on and on and on and on. And I'm always a bit... Uh, scared or shy of doing that because if you start saying George Orwell was really Eric Blair or uh, or any of the other host of people who wrote under pseudonyms uh, or John Le Carre, you know, um, people think you're trying to <laughs> trying to appropriate the legends of proper great writers. Um, my background twenty years ago was in theatre, and uh, in my I wrote plays, and in my uh, late 20s uh, an actor called Andrew Scott came on the scene leading to all sorts of irritation and confusion and, and ever more confusion and irritation as he went on to have an incredibly successful career as the sexy priest in Fleabag and in a Bond film and um, so I took the decision about 10 just over 10 years ago uh, and I was also writing satire at the time to take a pseudonym not realising that the pseudonym I picked one afternoon uh, in 2010 would go on to be my professional name. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> oh, well, that's an interesting story in itself. I'm glad I asked you because I was <laughs> puzzled. Your first book in this you know, series, this mini-genre, had fake history, in <laughs> it, fake history in it, but necessarily, of course, people in the history, or else history is just about dinosaurs and tectonic plates. But that made you pump up, pump up the volume on the people, as it were, second time round. You thought, I'm going to focus on the people this time as well as the events. Yeah, an interesting thing happened with the first book. I found that in the UK in particular, actually, uh, people got very, a certain group of people got very angry with me because I wrote a chapter on Winston Churchill, who really is, you know, our national uh, I call them societal heroes. Society has decided that he will be the hero of our times. Mm. And we had a prime minister at the time I was writing it, Boris Johnson, who, of course, you know, hammered home the similarities uh, between himself and Winston <laughs> Churchill with, you know, all the subtlety of a pneumatic drill, you know. Um, although, actually, there wasn't really a similarity because cometh the hour of uh, national disaster with COVID... Johnson was proved himself to be no Winston Churchill. Anyway, I wrote the chapter on Winston Churchill. I found that sparked a lot of interest from all sides. You know, there were the people who were angry I dared to question his, even things like the funny stories about Winston Churchill, which are mostly made up, you know, that none of those comical stories people tell about Churchill, like when he was talking to a woman, supposedly, and she said, you're drunk, and he said, you're ugly, but in the morning I'll be sober. Or the other one where uh, somebody says, um, you're completely impossible. If I, if I was married to you, I'd put poison in your tea. And he says, and I'd drink it. Yeah, these are great yes. stories. 
But Churchill never said either of those things or many of the many things attributed to him online. Um, they, they were actually old vaudeville gags that ended up being associated with Churchill. Even questioning things like that around this sacred figure angered people in the UK. So when I came to the second book, I thought, you know, I'll anger people to the power of 10. <laughs> what I'll do is I'll take... Oh, I didn't want to anger people. That's not true. I wanted to examine the true stories behind the myths of these people and to kind of punch through the facade and reach down and see what really went on and how those people became famous and what they were really like. Boris Johnson, when he wrote his own book on Churchill, claimed he had found the very spot where the conversation happened. But that's impossible because the, the line was first delivered in a music hall in the 1890s. And for about two decades, it was associated with another prime minister altogether, Lloyd George. Uh, Johnson could have checked that, but like many things in life, I think uh, he, he, he would rather go with what somebody told him over lunch than actually trouble himself with a bit of light research. Andrew Scott is <laughs> with us, ruining history for us. Uh, fake, <laughs> fake heroes, 10 false icons, how they altered the course of history. Heroes turn into the monsters they set out to slay, I'm quoting. For example, Fidel, Fidel Castro and Che Guevara. Now, Che Guevara, younger people will have no idea who he was, really, but he was the epitome of cool in Castro's Cuba revolution. He had a famous cap and, yeah. and a beard that made him even better looking. But in the end, Andrew, his death was squalid and futile, and he was, he was deluded and bloodthirsty. Yeah, it's a really sad story, that. The young Guevara, who rode out of um, Argentina on his motorbike in the 1950s, there's something really romantic and rather wonderful about that young man. You know, he, he comes from a very privileged family, uh, and he sets off into his continent to try and find out what it's all about. And along the way, I mean, nowadays we'd say he was radicalised, but uh, I think along the way, he sort of had a road to Damascus conversion and realised that there was a lot of poverty and hunger and despair out there. And to his enormous credit, he, he decided that rather than just going home and, you know, moaning about it or writing articles or books or something, he would actually set out to try and make the world a better place. And it's a huge ambition and it's a remarkable thing for any young person to do. What's even more remarkable is that, uh, along with the Castro brothers, um, he did it. They overthrew the Batista regime in Cuba, which was one of the most egregious and terrible regimes, even by the standards of its day. Uh, you know, corrupt, evil, in bed with American gangsters, like a really nasty regime. And up to that point, with a few moments where you kind of can see what is coming. Guevara is heroic. But as you just said, he then became the very monster that he set out to slay. And it's incredibly tragic what happened next. Uh, I mean, partly because along the way, and I think what will surprise people is, I think most people think he started out as a communist, but um, he didn't really. It was a slow progression. Unfortunately, he became a Stalinist. I mean, his big hero was Joseph Stalin. And his big hero was Joseph Stalin at the very pivotal moment 
uh, after Stalin had died, when the Soviet Union itself was denouncing Stalin. So um, he then went on to have these kangaroo courts and execute enemies of the state, and it got more and more out of control. He got more and more out of control. He wrecked almost single-handedly the Cuban economy, spent all the money that they'd inherited, then uh, having upset and annoyed the Americans, he upset and annoyed the Russians, the only lifeline Cuba had. And uh, the whole dream of a better Cuba and a better world went horribly sour. And as you say, ended up in an extremely violent denouement in uh, Bolivia in 1967, which is always always a sad thing. But in, in a country like that, which has so much potential, it's sort of doubly, a double tragedy. Well, things do go sour. You mentioned George Orwell earlier, and we all know that from, you know, Animal Farm, don't we? The, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. the human tendency to see things that aren't there in people, as you put it. Now, JFK, we probably don't need to explain the fakery of JFK, but can I talk about the mythos? I mean, if he had lived, these are points you make, of course, he would have had yeah. to de- he would have had to deal with the Vietnam War and civil rights, and the far less yeah. far less totemic figure of Lyndon Baines Johnson was the man who actually got a few things done afterwards under the aegis of his great society. That'd be fair, wouldn't it? I think that's spot on. Actually, I don't think the a lot of the things which we associate both with Johnson and with Kennedy's legacy, I don't think that would have happened nearly as quickly. Uh, it was uh, he was a, his death was a catalyst for all the things that we actually associate with Kennedy, including the civil rights movement. Uh, because I mean, the extraordinary thing about uh, the Kennedy administration is how short it was. It was a really short time, and all the hopes and promises and stuff that we associate with him. You know, they were a very handsome man, a very beautiful family. Um, he didn't really deliver any of that, but time has edited a lot of that out. So in the popular imagination, we think of him as being this almost semi, almost a demigod, this sort of semi-divine figure who had great dreams and hopes for his country and who wanted to deliver them. But it really was not like that at all. That was a posthumous rewrite on, on events. So his mythos was enormously influential afterwards. So actually... We need fake heroes. Progress mightn't happen if we knew all the falsehoods and all their foibles. That is an extremely good point, which I wish I'd put in my book, Jim. (laughs) (laughs) I'll have to write another one, yeah. Well, in fact, I mean, in fact, you you do put it in your book. And what interested me (laughs) most was, and I I didn't know this, the Camelot myth of the Kennedy administration, you know, bold, bright and beautiful people on the new frontier of human achievement. Jackie Kennedy invented that after JFK's death, the Camelot comparison? Yeah, it's amazing, that story. I mean, it's jaw-dropping. I didn't actually know that until I started uh, researching Kennedy. And I actually spent a few weeks in uh, on the east coast of America researching the book and going to the library and the presidential library and places. I didn't know that about that until I stumbled upon it one day. Yes, in the week after Kennedy died, she rang up. Life magazine, a journalist she knew on Life magazine in America, and um, 
said and, and, and essentially said, come round for an interview. Um, and she spun this huge, long story about how John F. Kennedy loved the musical Camelot, uh, which uh, I'm sure some older listeners probably will have seen the film with Richard Harris. Uh, but it was originally a musical on Broadway with uh, Richard Burton, the Welsh actor, and Julie Andrews. And it was a huge hit in uh, on both sides of the Atlantic, actually, on Broadway and in, in London. Um, and so everybody, lots of people own that record. And so in a very smart way, almost like a kind of pre-internet viral sensation, she did this interview and quoted huge chunks of the libretto in the interview. If you read the interview, it's very peculiar. She keeps throwing in references to Camelot the Musical and then quotes the last song, which is, for one brief shining moment, there was a place called Camelot, mm. because it's about the shattered dreams of Camelot, the very end of the musical. She quotes it in full, um, and then kind of insisted that the journalist put it all into his copy and that it all went into the magazine. And it's from that one interview that the Camelot myth sprung. Um, she insisted that John F. Kennedy loved Camelot, uh, but his secretary said that he hated that, never listened to it, and his favourite song was Bill Bailey, Will You Please Come Home? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Showing showing that when when you are trying to write a myth about someone, don't have some secretary who actually knows what went on and what your husband's favourite music choice was, or or wife, depending on who you are, Fake Heroes by Otto English. We're talking with Andrew Scott. But knowing all this about Kennedy and his womanizing and everything else, we all his, you know, both feet of clay, knowing all this, you still like him. I mean, they were, well, not, not everybody will, of course, but in terms of the myth, that they were seemingly elegant and graceful people, as you say. He was handsome and eloquent. Jackie was beautiful and clever and artistic. And I think in Ted Sorensen, he had about the best speechwriter in history at a time when people and book, believed and book in... Writer. And book writer. Yeah, yeah, and book writer. Yeah. yeah. Um, so Kennedy actually won the Pulitzer Prize for Literature for uh, for a book he wrote, which many people have subsequently, in fact, people claimed at the time that uh, it was called Profiles in Courage. And people claimed at the time that Sorensen had co-written it and the Kennedys threatened to sue them. That was before he became president. Um, but yes, so as I say in the book, when I, when I was in um, Boston uh, summer before last, walking around the uh, JFK Presidential Library and Museum with my then 17-year-old son. Um, I was, I was, I mean, I'm a difficult person to walk around museums with. I've just been around the Coco Chanel exhibition here in London with my wife, and I think she very nearly divorced me by the end of it uh, for, for reasons that will become apparent to anyone who watched the book. But I was walking around the museum, sort of half debunking it to my son in hushed tones, uh, you know, because it, it was so artfully edited. And then I had this moment right at the end when I thought, but wouldn't it be nice to believe this story of these extraordinary, beautiful, ideological, you know, people who just want to fling open the doors on a better world and make the world a better place and, and end the Cold War and, and stuff like that. And, uh, and you know, 
even thinking about it now, the kind of hairs go up on the back of my neck um, because we want to believe in those people. We want to believe in those visions and we want to believe that there are people out there who want to do it. Um, I'm not entirely convinced that Katie did want to do any of that. I think he, like a lot of people, it's, it's the truth that dare not say its name. A lot of these people just want to be in charge. You know, they want to be the head prefect. Uh, but it's a myth that's kind of worth believing in. And some myths definitely are worth believing in. And that's probably one of them. You know, the members of the 27 Club of Dead music stars, you know, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, Kurt Cobain, we know their flaws, we grieve them. But, and maybe like Kennedy, are we glad in a way they died young so we can enshrine them? They shine light so people can find their way, etc., etc. Yes, there is this sort of hunger for people who burn bright and beautiful and die young. It's there also, of course, with the romantic poets, with people like Keats uh, and Byron to some extent. You know, they all have feet of clay, uh, don't they? I mean, we all do. They all do. And we know they do. Your book starts with a real hero, though, Wesley Autry. Yes. Wesley Autry was a... 52-year-old construction worker in New York. And in January 2007, he was taking his two young daughters across uh, New York to their mother's house before he went on to work. And he was on the platform of the New York subway when uh, a guy, a young young guy called uh, Cameron Hollerpeter, had some kind of seizure on the platform. And to cut a long story short, fell onto the tracks. And Wesley Autry, who had never met this guy, never encountered him uh, without any thought for himself uh, or or his own safety or his life, he leapt literally in front of a train that was coming into the station, grabbed this guy, rolled them both into a drainage chute, and the train passed, I think, with an, it was an, a, an inch over the top of their heads uh, and saved this guy's life. Um, and it's an incredible story. America turned him into a celebrity, um, started giving him free stuff. Uh, you know, he went to the Playboy mansion, was given a Playboy hat. He even met a guy, I'm not sure if you'll have heard of him, he was called Donald Trump, who was a property developer <laughs> in New York at the time, who uh, kind of decided that he was going to outdo everybody else by giving Wesley Autry $10,000, which is an extremely uh, Donald Trump thing to do. His ratings for his show, The Apprentice, were failing. He wanted to increase his profile. And so people sort of like limpets latched on to Wesley Autry and his story to kind of get some of the sheen of his glory, what what the Greeks called chaos, onto himself. Nevertheless, despite what the slightly tawdry aspects of what may have happened afterwards, yeah. he was one, actually, it was less than an inch from uh, after reading your book. He was 1.2 yeah. centimetres away from death yeah. by that train. Yes, incredible. Astonishing Absolutely bravery. incredible. Yeah, yeah and, and even more astonishing, because as I say in the book, um, very often, it's not unusual for people to go to the aid of others. That, that's a, a really beautiful and optimistic thing. And I don't think we talk up our species enough sometimes. You know, human beings are capable of doing the most fabulous, wonderful, altruistic things for others. But 
quite often uh, the research shows that people will sort of help people who almost mirror themselves or the people they know. The extraordinary thing about the Wesley Autry story is that he was a black American in his 50s from a very working class background who rescued a white uh, movie st- film student um, who he'd never encountered before. Yeah. The, the degree of altruism within him was there. And, and he was baffled when he had all this attention. He just thought that's what you did. You know, it was deep, deep within him to behave heroically. And I'm afraid a lot of the fake heroes in my book don't have an ounce of what Wesley Autry had. I'd never heard of Wesley Autry. You will have never heard of of people we have in New Zealand. We we had a, um, Austin Hemmings who died stepping in to save a woman from her attacker. Uh, Tony McLean. These are names I remember who roped himself to a disabled teenager trying to save his life on a swollen river. You don't forget these stories. You want to kind of keep their memories alive because of their outstanding courage. So do you think, the obvious question, do you think that these people, the Wesley Autrys of this world, uh, are the people whose graves we should visit rather than trooping to that cemetery in Paris to pay respects to Jim Morrison? Yeah, I mean... It would be nice to have some new heroes. And I do try to, in in my very uh, subtle way, try to hammer that point home in the book. Um, You know, I try, for every hero we've heard of, whether it's JFK or Guevara or Andy Warhol or or, or, um, the Kennedys or Mother Teresa, I try to tell the story of someone that readers might not have heard of. So, for example... Uh, in the Douglas Bader chapter, I tell the story of a guy called Ian Gleed, who was every bit as heroic as Douglas Bader, if not more so, actually. But, and who, even in the 1940s, was kind of celebrated. But the reason many people haven't heard of him was that Ian Gleed was gay. And for the British uh, propaganda efforts of the war, that didn't really fit the mould. So Gleed was kind of quietly dropped post-war as, as one of our national heroes. Um, and I talk about people like Shirley Chisholm. Uh, uh, really, I mean, Americans will know who she is, but I, I think outside of New York, she's not really known. Shirley Chisholm was this incredible woman um, who, who was essentially one of America's first black politicians in the 1960s. And she, um, she ran to be president. She tried to get the Democratic nomination um, and it wasn't like, you know, dipping her toe in or, or you know, she really went for it. She was really determined to try and run for president. And, and there's a remarkable woman who is now actually being celebrated in America. So it would be great to hear these other people rather than just a sort of endless line as we have in the UK of kind of, you know, the, what I call the Ladybird book his, uh, heroes, you know, people like Francis Drake or Winston Churchill or people like that who've stood on their plinths for ages no one's ever really questioned them. You think some events in history, by the by, are so big that they can't be accepted, hence conspiracy theories. I suppose 9-11 springs to mind. 9-11 springs to mind. The death of Kennedy is another one. Um, Of course, the recent pandemic, to a large extent, I talk in the book about something called apophenia, uh, which is the human tendency to try and make 
patterns where there are none. So a, a very simple example of that is when you look up at the sky and you see, um, you know, you see the queen in a cloud. It's called gambler's fallacy as well. It's when p- people are at the card table or watching the roulette wheel and they, <laughs> they say, oh, there's a pattern emerging. There's a pattern emerging. There's no pattern emerging. You're just lucky and now you're going to lose it all. Um, and it's the same with conspiracy theories. Gambler's fallacy and apophenia play a big part in conspiracy theories, which have always been with us. We've had conspiracy theories throughout history. There were huge conspiracy theories around the Great Fire of London, for example. In fact, there were conspiracy theories around Rome burning down under Emperor Nero. Um, And there was a massive series, a whole industry of conspiracy theories around the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, uh, all of which got forgotten with the assassination of John F. Kennedy. I want to scoot through a few big names because that's always nice to have in an interview. John Wayne, the great Western hero, uh, the archetypal Western hero, actually, star of, you know, Stagecoach and Rio Bravo. He was a draft dodger. You talked quite a lot about John. You know, in the movie, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, if I remember this right, James Stewart is the noble sheriff who's not much use with a gun. John Wayne, I think, secretly shoots Liberty Valance in the climactic gunfight. In a way, you have, yeah. the, you have the story of fake heroism right there. When the story becomes legend, print the legend. Yes, I mean, it's an amazing film, that, and it really sums it up. It is how we project, how America created itself, pr- cr- creating heroes. John Wayne is, is the most peculiar character in the book because I picked him purely because as a child, he genuinely was my hero. You know, he was like, no nonsense, didn't want to to go to action, but if he was pushed, he would. He embodied a sort of kind of masculine hero that me as an 11, 12-year-old kid in Essex loved and watched on Saturday afternoon TV. And as you just said, you know, the real John Wayne was very different. In fact, to his credit, he admitted that he was nothing like John Wayne. John Wayne was your hero. Robin Hood could have been. Tell us, this, if, you, if you wouldn't mind, the story of the writing of the Robin Hood song that some of us remember from the dim, distant past. Yeah, do I mention that in the book? No, I've heard you talk about it. <laughs> I have talked about that. Yes, you'll have to remind me, actually. Robin Hood, Robin Hood, riding through the Glen, Robin Hood, Robin Hood, with his band of men. And I always wondered about the writing of it, having an interest in lyrics, because there's a story about um, they called the greatest archers to a tavern on the green. I'm just trying to get to the right line. They handled all the trouble on the English country scene. And I thought, that's a fairly American thing to say. And in fact, the writers were... Oh, yes. So the Robin Hood TV series, which presumably was shown in New Zealand as well, which was made by ATV in the 1950s in the UK, um, was uh, it was largely written by people who had been thrown out of America, courtesy of the McCarthy witch hunts, which of course were a purge against communist infiltration of Hollywood. Um, And several of them came to the UK and came to work for commercial TV. And 
<laughs> I mean, this is an extraordinary thing. And made this popular kids' TV show about people who were overthrowing the capitalist state. <laughs> I mean, it was communist subversion by another name. Um, and did it all under assumed names. Yeah, it's an amazing, an amazing story. <laughs> Before we go, I want to be the devil's advocate with you on Mother Teresa because you are quite harsh on her. And I think we knew some of it already, her terrible childhood, dreams of escape to life in India, the feeling of having Christ in her life, the vocation, the road to Damascus moment, in her case on a train to Darjeeling, uh, about her life mission, what she needed to do, but at the same time her faith abandoned her. And she said, you know, in one letter, there's a terrible darkness within me as if everything was dead. You know, when you're running on empty, um, running on fumes, I think was the phrase we used a couple of weeks back when she popped into the conversation. That can be terribly heroic. I know you see it as fake and it is by definition what she did. But she also and I know there's a lot to the Mother Teresa story, but we can't conclude as people have in your book we can't conclude that she wished poverty and pain on people just because she saw a terrible beauty in their poverty can we no i uh, i i hope i mean the, the the great polemicist christopher hitchens really went after and i i do try to upbraid him in the book because i think he went too far um she was a victim of circumstance uh she was a young girl caught up in terrible events um, in the, the, at the end of the First World War. Her father was assassinated in Serbia. Um, she, her, The rest of her family died. Large, the, All the men died in the Spanish flu, and there were no opportunities. And she had this great romantic longing to go to India and to be a missionary because she, she had kids' storybooks in which that had happened. Um, and so off she went. I managed to talk to a couple of former nuns who had experienced the same crisis of faith in their lives. So I think we do need to be sympathetic to the situation that she found herself in. I do understand that there was this longing for the faith, the innocent faith of her childhood, and that she was constantly trying to go back to it and that she did feel she connected to it through the pain and poverty and suffering in Calcutta. Just one quick point. Just because you have a dark night of the soul, prolonged in yeah. her case, is it fake, do you think, to keep that concealed when you know you inspire millions? The trouble is, if you have a dark night of the soul moment, uh, with the two nuns that I spoke to while researching the book, they, one of them had it very young. In fact, while she was still a novice, she was 19. Um, you're in the wrong place to be questioning God. She also had a huge amount of status, and we all have status in our lives, and we're all sort of unwilling very often to give it up. You know, it was her job, it was her life. She had dedicated her entire existence to the charity and to the Catholic Church. <laughs> Fake Heroes by Otto English, 10 False Icons, and how they altered the course of history. And we haven't got to all 10. I think we may have mentioned nearly all 10. Lovely to talk to you. We've chatted for a long time, and I appreciate you giving us the time. But, uh, Andrew, lovely to talk to you. Jim, I've really, really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Otto English, a.k.a. Uh, Andrew Scott, 
a prominent English journalist.